Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 169. I hope that everyone out there who is listening is safe. I would imagine that there's a fair amount of you who are involved in protesting in its various forms. And I hope that, you know, you guys are safe and you're healthy because there's some real, some real craziness going on right now. This episode today features a man by the name of Tony Patino. Tony was a member of the punk rock music scene in the 1980s in Tampa, Florida. And more recently, he has been chronicling that time. He put out a a DVD called We Can't Help It If We're From Tampa and put out a few books. He sent me one that's a book of like show flyers and pictures from the era He also has a book that he mentions in this episode about uh, touring, where he interviews touring bands. So he's doing a lot to keep this history of the Florida punk scene, the Tampa Bay punk scene, he's doing a lot to keep that alive. And I'm always interested in that, right? If you recall, I had Margaret Nee on the podcast. She talked about the San Diego music scene. And I'm interested in it, you know, all over the country and all over the world. A lot of the music that we talk about is not that readily available. So you'll hear some band names. I I found some stuff on YouTube, actually. It's not always the best recording quality. uh, But in terms of things still being in print, they're, they're not. There was some stuff on iTunes for you to purchase. Um, I do have a song that's going to play right after this, and that's by the band No Fraud. But I don't think they're actually from Tampa. I think they're more of a Central Florida band, but it's a band we reference, uh, a band that shows up in the materials that Tony has published. And um, I have them here for you, so that No Fraud will follow this. But my relationship to Tampa as a region is that I've had family there my entire life, So it was maybe like every two years as a kid, we would travel there. And I was really close with my cousin. So that was always, those are fond memories. But I I knew it as a young person, I knew it as like, oh, there's beaches and we can go fishing and we can go out on a boat. My cousin did play in a band as we got a little bit older. Maybe, well, a little bit older. Maybe it was like 2006 era. Maybe when I was about, yeah, like 20-ish. And I, my memory is a bit hazy, but I'm pretty sure I did see them live. Uh, they were called Evasion. And then I went on tour with my friend Tim's band, Divider, just like a roadie merch guy, more <laughs> moral support guy. And we went to D-Land, Florida. I don't know if it's D-Land or D-Land. I apologize if you're from there. Um, which is not Tampa. I'm pulling up a map as we speak. Yeah, that is a bit north of Orlando, so like east side of Florida. I don't know why the show got booked there, but it was a house show, and it honestly was chaos. It it sort of devolved 
into this like massive like party out on the lawn where just like everyone from the town showed up. But there is a connection to this episode because when we were driving down there, I remember seeing on the side of the road a Confederate flag posted. Now again, I'm you know I'm from New York. Um, this was really the first time I had seen something like that. I'm definitely not trying to demonize all of Florida and call everybody in Florida racist. That's not what I'm saying. But that was a bit surprising to see that displayed publicly. And the experiences in D-Land were also just, they were a bit weird. Uh, but the connection to this episode is Tony talks about how the scene in the 80s was pretty violent. And from hearing his account, there was definitely like a faction of the scene that was uh, like violent, dangerous, and racist. Now, if you're familiar with you know, punk rock music or hardcore music, um, you'll know that there there's like various factions and subgenres and like subgroups, like social groups within the subgroup itself, right? The subculture. And so like racist bands wasn't really something that was around when I started going to shows in New York. You'd hear stories of like the old days. And again, if you're unfamiliar, like we're talking about heavy, aggressive music um, at the time, you know, largely catered to like angsty males, like young men and, and teens. And so there was a racist component that latched onto that and had its own sort of subgroup. And you'd hear stories of them like getting run out of scenes um, over the years. But it sounds like it was a bit prevalent during this time for Tony, which makes it like even crazier and scarier. Um, so yeah, his, story, his stories are wild. Um, and I, I love hearing old show stories. And so for me, that's, it's quite cool and entertaining to hear about like the crazy days, but also just again, as a part of like the historical record of music, right? If that even makes sense or the historical record of punk music, I would really hate to see things disappear and that could be anything really. I mean, that could be underground hip hop music or folk music or whatever. As things become digitized and, and certain records go out of print, I would hate to see them disappear. So I was definitely interested to talk to him to help preserve the information about these bands and this time. I mean, he's done that in a much greater way than I have by putting out a DVD and writing a book. But um, I guess this is my, my small contribution to that. So I'd love to do more of these sort of regional music episodes. I think that's really cool. Actually, when I was down in Tampa, you know, a year and a half ago, and I had done a couple episodes there, I had been speaking to a woman who does hip hop out of Orlando. I get into a lot of conversations and they don't come to fruition. Um, but I'm definitely interested in, in, in doing more of those. So if you have any recommendations for a person to talk to who is instrumental in running a scene or putting out records or booking shows and things like that, I'd really be interested in hearing from them.
Okay. Check out the show notes for this episode and you will find a link to Tony's stuff. The song that's about to play is No Fraud, Hard to the Core, which actually came out on Nuclear Blast, which is wild. Hmm. Yeah. So check that out. And there's a link to my Patreon in the show notes as well. You know what that is, but the, the tier systems give you things like shirts or stickers or postcards from around the world. Some, you know, TV, TV gear. All right, folks, enjoy the song and then the conversation with Tony. Been, um, I know a little bit of a long time coming, obviously, between the time I first messaged you and now, uh, the world is in a major crisis, huh? So, um, I'm glad in we, more ways than one, yeah. <laughs> I mean, especially here, God. Um, but yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad we were able to do this. This is really cool for me. You're in, um, yes, you're in Kentucky now. No, no, no. I'm in a, I'm just outside of Tampa. Oh, okay, okay. I lived there for about seven or eight years. Oh, I got you. All right. Yeah, actually, yeah, I got, so I have family down there, but, um, you know, were you, uh, have you been greatly impacted? Is, are things like certainly weird for you right now? Not really. Uh, I haven't lost employment or anything like that. Uh, my life hasn't changed much, you know, I don't, I'm, I don't go out too much anyway, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I think the only thing that really has been different for me is, uh, 
the mask thing and all that. And, and people down here don't really seem to care. They, it's yeah chaos, you know. Um, yeah. It's as if nothing's really happening, and, and, and I don't know. I, I've got mixed feelings about what's really going on, you know. Uh, I haven't met anyone that knows anyone that's died or anything like that. So it's it's kind of odd, you know. Yeah, it's it's really hard to know what's really going on. It's hard to not label yourself as a crazy if you do start to question things. Um, I don't know. It, it's a it's a weird thing that's become politicized and. Yeah, I don't know. I guess like just like most people, I just don't know. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's literally the craziest time in my life, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, especially even today. You know, I spent most of today so far catching up with this George Floyd thing from yeah. Minneapolis. And, uh, you know, what a terrible time for something like that to happen. And... uh it's so surreal watching what's going on everywhere, you know? And I guess people, you know, people are reacting the way you would expect them to react. It's just, I can't believe things like this are still happening. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Watching, watching what I've seen of, uh, of what happened with George Floyd, it's none of it makes any sense, you know? Uh, so now they're just, everybody's just destroying everything, which I like chaos, believe me. But this is kind of a little bit, <laughs> a little bit too much, maybe. Uh, I guess. Listen, I guess I'll try to. Um, I'll connect it to the music, right? So uh, I'm here in my like midish thirties. Um, I got involved in, you know, as a fan and someone attending, you know, local punk shows and hardcore shows, and then kind of sneaking off to New York City because I grew up on Long Island. Um, So I was like late 90s, right? Uh, But I'm like, I'm supremely interested in in music all over the place. Like I I did an episode, I think I mentioned to you about um, like punk music in San Diego. There's a really cool woman there named Margaret who's sort of cataloging the scene there. And I I think I, I share maybe her fear that with things like Spotify and everything becoming digital that we might lose out on these like really important you know, components of music history or of, of punk history or even just history. So I don't know how I found you. It, it might've been like a simple Google search at the time. Uh, but I really love what you're doing and I, I wanted to talk to you. You know, I've, I've looked through a lot of what you, what you sent me and stuff that's online and I'd love to, to dive a little bit deeper uh, into, you know, the history of punk music in Florida and in Tampa. So this is, uh, it's really cool to, to get to do this with you. Great. Now, yeah, yeah Tamp- I'm sorry. Tampa's, it's not like New York or California or anything like that, but it was, it was a, a pretty great scene, I thought, at least in the 80s mainly, you know. It's all different now, of course. Yeah, uh, and We so- had a really good time. <laughs> You know, my relationship to the region is I have family that's been in like Tampa, Clearwater, St. Pete. Um, so, you know, I, I knew it as like warm weather and beaches. And if you, right. think, if you think of something like the Lower East Side in the 70s in New York, the environment was ripe for that type of music. 
or maybe even like, I don't know, Southern California has skateboarding and maybe even like suburban boredom (laughs) and the combination of those things lead to like a punk music scene. Uh, the, the Tampa of your youth and the Tampa of the eighties, what was it like at the time? Well, uh, when I first, well, see, I had a, I had a, I was one of those kids that, uh, embraced music. Unlike a lot of people did, you know, like by the time I was 13, I had a record collection, (laughs) you know, where I had them all in plastic covers and didn't want my friends touching them, (laughs) you know? Uh, and it was a pretty broad range of music. And, uh, I had a brother-in-law Well, he was a boyfriend to my sister before they got married that worked at a, a, a used record store. And I'd already been turned on to a lot of different types of music, but he started turning me on to the more obscure things, uh, uh, the Ramones, you know, Thin Lizzy, Frank Zappa, stuff like that. So I had records that these other kids at school, they didn't know what it was, you know, yeah. <laughs> didn't care. But uh, so when high school rolled around, we started skateboarding and I started meeting people that shared that same passion, you know, where, where music was very important to us. And I started learning about a lot of different stuff and I ended up going to a punk show with a friend of mine. We weren't old enough to drive. So his mother dropped us off and had no idea when she picked us up, what we had been through, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Uh, But what I saw was pretty much a bunch of people doing whatever they wanted to do. And whether it be good or bad, they, there was, seemed to be nobody telling them, Hey, you know, you can't be, can't be doing that. <laughs> you know? yeah. So that was the attraction at first. And, and the, the first, that first punk show I went to was at a, at a nightclub that basically it was the first, I think the first punk show at that nightclub where someone had talked to them and, you know, probably told them, Hey, you know, if you, if you do this, you'll pack this place with people which sounded great, but then next thing you know, their club is packed with a whole bunch of crazy people, you know, and they're looking around like, oh my God, what have we done? So the place got destroyed and they pulled the plug on the band, like something out of a movie, you know, and and there was a rail in front of the stage and the band just destroyed it, kicked it out and, and all hell broke loose. And I thought, wow, you know, this is, this is pretty cool. And, uh, so we kept going and, and it was, it was tough because it seemed like, uh, the people that made up the core people in the scene, it was almost like that was their thing. And, and they were sheepish about letting other people get involved. Yeah. So like if you were new, um, you kind of had to take your licks like, uh, once I kind of established myself, like I, I'd gotten beat up, jumped early on and I had to decide, you know, well, is this worth going back to? And, and to me it was. And, uh, so I kept going to those places and eventually even like the people that beat me up became friends of mine. Yeah. <laughs> and then you watch other people come in, Oh, look at this new person. They're probably going to get beat up. And generally they did. So 
it was the the people that really, I guess, were uh, really true about what they wanted. What you know, they, they wanted to be there. They were the ones that came back and and made up the scene. But it was very violent, and the music was great, and it was just one of those things where what drew you to it was the fact that you didn't know what was going to happen every night, but you knew something was going to happen hmm. that was going to blow your mind, you know? And, and it was like you, every night that you went to these places, something would go down that you would be like, wow, I, I can't believe I just saw that. So that was kind of the attraction and, uh, no police presence ever. Wow. Uh, so everybody just did their thing, you know, with, with no consequence. Do you, do you remember who played that first uh, that first show you went to? It was a band called Jehovah's Sicknesses, and they were a local Tampa band. Uh, and it was it was like I said, like something out of a movie. Uh, I remember I think some of the guys in the band had the, the black stuff underneath their eyes, like football players wear. And I just remember watching it, thinking, "Man, this is just." <laughs> while they were playing, you know, just watching them, it's like, "Man, these guys are angry. This is." insane <laughs> you know so like the first few bands i saw were uh were local bands and then the that was like 80 that was i think early 86 and that was when punk was really coming into something and, and bands were coming over from europe and touring so this we started to get to see the uh the bigger bands like say gbh or seven seconds you know, and those shows were huge in Tampa, and and those were really crazy shows. Like you, you knew something was going to happen crazy. <laughs> but uh, so the the local bands when they played, it was a smaller crowd. But when the bigger bands came through, it was really big. Um, but there was some great local bands for sure. You know, you know this is obviously. Where did you? Oh, I'm sorry. What's that? Mm-hmm. What's that? Uh, what, what were you going to ask? I'm sorry, Tony. Where where were you going to shows at? So, you said New York, right? Yeah, I grew up in Suffolk County. Um, so there were there were shows in Suffolk, and they were sh- it was like uh, divided by area code, right? So it was five one six was Nassau County, and six three one was Suffolk County. So there was even like a compilation of like the five one six six three one comp, and uh, you know it was kind of like territorial in that way, I guess. But we had, um, you know, American Legion halls, VFWs, community centers, little shitty bars. One time my dad caught me when I was like 14 in my town at this, this local bar and I wasn't like drinking or anything, but it was, it was an all ages show. Um, but my mom freaked out about that. And then, you know, I was very fortunate to, I got to see CBGBs before it closed um, a place called the Wetlands, uh, the, the knitting factory is in Brooklyn now, but at the time it was in Manhattan and they had a, an upstairs and they had a basement and in the basement was like the, like more, uh, not the smaller bands, more chaotic, some like the, the crusty type of bands and stuff like that. Um, but our place that, that was, uh, when the big bands came through, we had these guys that, they would host the shows at a place near downtown Tampa called the Cuban club. And it was, a it was a big building that had a big, well, first off it had a basement 
and they started the shows in the basement, but it also had a courtyard that had a band shell and everything was concrete. The stage was concrete. Whoa. Nothing could get damaged. So that's where they started doing the big shows. And it, it was, it was perfect because, you know, nothing could really get damaged, <laughs> you know? So they, they did the big shows and uh, the local shows or the, maybe the middle of the road bands that weren't big enough for those guys to put on shows for. It was just a different club. You know, like a club might have three shows and say, that's it, we're done. You know, because the violence, there was a big skinhead presence going on in 86, 87. And, uh, and that, you know, there wasn't a night where there was a show where there wasn't some type of major violence or, you know, that they would beat up the club owner. They'd beat up, you know, just whatever. So wow. it was, uh, and it, it, you would think people would think, well, let's not do this because maybe we can have more shows at this place. But that just wasn't the mindset of people. They just wanted to stir up trouble, which, you know, I, I, I'm guilty of that. <laughs> you know, we, we liked causing trouble and chaos and, and, if it meant we'd have to find a new club, then so be it, I guess. But that's kind of how it was, you know. Do you think Florida was particularly violent? Because I saw that in, I know the, it was. in the Tampa scene book, too. You've got the newspaper clippings in there, and it's like, oh, my God. Like, this seemed like it was wild. Well, at the time, I thought this is just the way it is everywhere, you know. But it wasn't until I talked to people later in life from other cities like California or whatever. And uh, it seems that Tampa had a reputation around the country. Like uh, there was some incidents with bands that came through like uh, Corrosion of Conformity was one band. I remember that they had said something from the stage or done something from the stage that uh, ended up with their tires getting slashed. And I think they almost got jumped the dead milkman came through and, and uh, got surrounded by skinheads and uh, almost got pummeled. But I, I, from what I was told, they sailed over a case of Heineken. Like, okay, get us a case of Heineken and you guys can go and leave. And that's what happened. Wow. But uh, so people were telling other people like bands that were touring the circuit or whatever, uh, Oh, where are you going next? Oh, we're going down to Florida. And, oh, be careful in Tampa. <laughs> you know, so I think we were maybe a, a notch up in, in violence. It, it was rough, you know, and I don't think it was quite like that everywhere else. Uh, I've heard stories from other people from other places about when they were here, you know. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember if it was in the DVD you sent because I watched a few things. But there was even like a, I think Rollins might have gotten beat up in, in Tampa also. What happened there was uh, Black Flag played and they had a sound man that wasn't digging, I guess, the way the crowd was acting. Uh, uh, this, the, the whole story really is with the sound equipment. He thought it was getting damaged and, and I guess... I don't know if it was the club's sound equipment or Black Flag's sound equipment, but they, the guy picked up a hammer and went into the crowd to tell people to lay off of the equipment or something, and they took the hammer from him and, and 
hit him in the head with it. Whoa. And cracked his head open. And Rollins didn't get hurt, uh, but he was angry and refused to play Tampa anymore for quite a few years. Once That was Black Flag's last tour. So once he did solo, he, he skipped out on Tampa. He, he refused, you know, because they had hurt his sound guy pretty bad. Yeah. You know? Wow. Were there... um. Were there regional scenes? Like, I know now Orlando has a scene. Like, if a band was going to be doing a U.S. tour, were there other options in Florida, or did they come to Tampa and then, like, skip over to Alabama or something? Uh, well, they wanted to hit Miami, which I think Miami was even more violent than Tampa was. Really? Wow. And Orlando kind of was, too. Uh, there, was, there, was, uh, there was a couple of different groups of skinheads in Tampa because uh, you got St. Petersburg, which is just across the bridge. So they they were not exactly united, I guess. Uh, but then there was a skinhead group out of Orlando and they would sometimes come to Tampa for a show. And when they did, it was incredibly chaotic. Like, uh, like if I remember, like if, if I didn't go to a show, I would ask somebody how to go and they would say, man, uh, the Orlando skinheads came. And right then that's all you needed to know that all hell broke loose and a lot of people got hurt. (laughs) So, uh, we didn't go to Orlando much, but sometimes the Orlando people would come to Tampa and, uh, I think mainly to, to cause trouble. And they were very successful in that. (laughs) They were, they were pretty much peers, you know, they had a bad reputation. You know, so there was a regional thing going on, you know. You know, this isn't necessarily like an entirely music podcast or a punk podcast. So I guess for people listening, we can maybe like differentiate between, you know, th- there's many, it's interesting that there's there's very a lot of subsections uh, and different genres within the genre and like a splintering effect almost of like social groupings within, you know, punk music. And like, it, it was sort of, cartoonishly depicted in the movie SLC punk, right? And like a, in a comical way. Uh, But so people understand that like there was, and I guess still is a subsection that some racist folks clinged onto. And, you know, there's even within skinheads, there's like peaceful passive skinheads and there's racist skinheads. Like this is, you know, we, we could go on and on with like the, the dynamics of this, um, but that type of thing, well, I think, I, I think you know uh, the the whole uh, Nazi thing back then in the eighties. Uh, it, it, I believe it was sort of a trend, you know. Um, and I don't think people really thought about it too much. But the thing was, people wanted to be outrageous and they wanted to be offensive, and you can't get much more offensive than that. Yeah. Uh, so that might be why some people latched onto it. Um, I knew a lot of, the thing was to, to be able to frequent the places that we frequented, you had to kind of turn a blind eye to a lot of stuff that ordinarily you wouldn't. And so, uh, it, it was, you had to weigh things out, you know, I mean, there was, there was racism there, but I don't, necessarily believe that the people 
really believed in what they were doing. I think, like I said, they were, they were just following a trend, mm. which is hard to believe that that, that could be a trend, yeah. but it, I think it was. And, uh, so I see, yeah, I saw stuff that I didn't like, but, um, to be able to continue doing what I wanted to and going to the places I wanted to go, I just had to accept it. You know, wow. it was just how it was. Because what else are you going to do? I mean, well, I felt like, well, where else am I going to go? I don't fit anywhere else. You know what I mean? So you had to deal with some people that you, you had to basically not necessarily like those people, but you had to stay on their good side. I because see. if you got on their bad side, you're going to regret it. And you may not ever get back on their good side. You know what I mean? So you just kind of had to do what you had to do to not let this person get angry at you because that anger spreads and, uh, and it, and it wasn't one of those things where, well, you know, we all fought, fighting was a, a lot of it, but when you got into it with somebody else, it wasn't a one-on-one fight. You know, you're going to get beat bad <laughs> by several people. So, you know, fighting was a big part of, of it all. You know, like I'm a small guy. I had to defend myself in high school, or not high school, but before high school, I had to. But uh, then you just got to the point where, you know, there's probably going to be a fight and you're probably going to be in it. But but you had to stay on the good side of the people that were normally starting those fights. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So it was, you had to be cautious. You know, the whole the whole subculture is a bit more normalized now and even probably like, co-opted by you know fashion companies and and things like that uh but at the time like you know if you're coming home from a show all bruised up and listening to loud music were, were your parents freaking out were, were were you you know looked at as like ostracized by kids at school my parents gave me a curfew and i threw that out the window <laughs> and uh and because it seemed like my curfew was pretty much right when things were starting to get to happen, <laughs> you know, like 11 o'clock, come on. That's when everything's starting to, to really pop. <laughs> so we had an understanding uh, that I, I would come home when I wanted to, you know, and there wasn't a lot of incidents of me stumbling in the house drunk or anything like that. It, it was just, they, I'm sure, it was, I mean, I wasn't the best of, uh, of uh, kids, <laughs> you know, so how they put up with all that, I don't know. But, but yeah, they, they knew I was into something different, you know. Yeah. They, uh, they tried to put me in a drug rehab. I wasn't on drugs. Wow. Uh, but they were afraid, you know, and uh, that was when I was 17, and uh they put me in a maximum security drug rehab and they, the last thing they asked the people when they checked me in was, are you sure he can't escape? And they said, no, no one's ever escaped from here. Well, I escaped the next day. What? So, How did you do yeah, that? And uh, I had to jump out a second floor window with no clothes on. So, what? <laughs> and then you just went home? In a, in a rainstorm. But I got away, you know. Wow. And they said, you got to go back. And I said, if I go back, 
I'll escape again, and I won't come home. So we kind of had an understanding after that, you know, that I can kind of do what I want to do. Wow. <laughs> well, there was abuse in that place, too. And it was called the straight program. And if you research it, that all came crumbling down and there was lawsuits and uh, it, it, it all fell apart. So it wasn't what I signed up for. They told me that I was going to be in there for an evaluation. So I looked at it like a vacation, but it was not a vacation. It was it was very brutal the very first day. So, you know, I had to get out of there. Were they doing like electroshock therapy and stuff like that? No, but there was a lot of brainwashing going on. Mm. Uh, one of the requirements was I had to have pants that had a that had belt loops because anywhere you went, they had someone bigger than you holding you by the belt loop. And when you used the bathroom, they watched you. When you showered, they watched you. Wow. Uh, it, it was a uh, very degrading, and I could tell that. A lot of people didn't want to be there. And most of the day in the facility, people would, uh, every five minutes, somebody would jump up and, and run. Whether they could get out of the building, I don't know, but they were trying to. And when they did, somebody would, you know, a group of people would attack them. They would attack back and then they would get beat to hell. So, you know, it, it was a, uh, I could see that I didn't need to be there and they wouldn't <laughs> let me call my parents to tell them what I was seeing. So I thought, well, it's time to go then, you know? <laughs> Holy shit, Tony. Wow. Um, Fun times. I, I'll, I'll take it back. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it back to the music, but was there, um, <laughs> you know, was there like an, an it band in Tampa? Was there like the seminal punk band that everyone was always excited to see like a local band? Well, Nobody really lasted too long, and nobody really made it out of town. Uh, there was a, one band that made a big mark. Was We also had Sarasota and Bradenton, which are you know, south of here. and uh, They had punk bands there, but they didn't have many places to play, so they would come to Tampa. So we had a band called... Oddly enough, they were called Belching Penguin, but they just went by BP, and they got really big. They put an album out. Uh, there's another band from Venice, Florida, which is even further south than that, called No Fraud. They put some albums out. Uh, those guys, I think, did a little touring, but not extensively, and never became household names, but they were like, yeah, they were like our local rock stars. You know, they were such good bands. And uh, No Fraud still plays today. You know, they started in like 84, something like that. And they never really quit. The the singer moved to California and continued the band. And uh, they come through every now and then, and we go check it out. But uh, a, a lot of bands we consider to be legendary, like the, the band Jehovah's Sicknesses I saw, they were kind of legendary um there's the pink lincolns which is more of a pop punk band they put out several albums and did a lot of touring uh they don't play anymore the singer chris barros is still very active uh he's always in some kind of band uh and then there was just several different local bands that i loved there was those bands 
uh, like Blemish on Society was one of them that I thought was just incredible, you know. But no, like I said, nobody lasted too long. I don't know why. Um, but those were the main bigger ones was Pink Lincolns, BP, and No Fraud. So, and you probably never heard of any of them. <laughs> I mean, not until you sent me stuff. Certainly not. Uh, I did listen to No Fraud. Um, like really raw, very 80s sounding. <laughs> um, yeah, very crazy. Yeah. Tampa was more death metal. Death, death metal was Tampa's thing. Ah. You know, that's where bands would like move to Tampa from other states because death metal was the thing in Tampa. Like we had Morbid Angel and Death and, and uh, there's a band called Jenna Tortures. Um, so that was a big thing in the in the mid '80s was death metal, and I remember <laughs> I remember checking it out and waking up with a sore neck, you yeah. know, <laughs> from head banging. <laughs> but uh, that was a funny thing too because when death metal came about with the punk thing jumping from one club to another, there was a there was a nightclub called the Sunset Club where death metal kind of got seeded, and somebody talked them into doing a punk show. And that did not go over too well with the, with the long hair metalheads. And I was up there one night and I pulled in and, and, uh, there was a lot of skinheads there and there was a lot of metalheads there and they were kind of facing off. And I was like, uh Oh, <laughs> you know, and it turned into probably the, one of the biggest brawls that I ever been involved in where, where there's just like a hundred people all fighting each other. Oh my God. You know? And there was, bottles broken on people's heads and, and, uh, just real chaotic. I mean, I'd never seen anything like it. <laughs> the skinheads trying to take over a metalhead club. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it, it looked from the DVD, um, and even from, you know, the book you sent that there was a big DIY scene too. It looked like a lot of house shows were happening. Um, like, were you, oh, yeah. were you involved in booking or anything like that? I put together, a, um, a couple shows. I played in a band, uh, for a couple of years. We never became much, never really even got that good, but we just had fun playing. And our first, uh, gig that we had was at a pet cemetery. There was a, a person that had a pet cemetery with a small house on the property and they had built a stage and someone had asked us if we wanted to play that gig. And, um, we were like, we weren't even thinking about playing in front of people. So, or I wasn't, but we were like, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. And I remember, uh, we got there and dragging my gear across this stage that had been built out of plywood. And I'm looking down and, and I realized that the stage, the plywood stage had a giant swastika on it. Oh my God. And, I, <laughs> and so I'm like, all right, well, and, uh, it, it seemed like the, the majority of the shows we were getting, uh, asked to play were, what were those types of shows, you know? So, uh, but there was, a there was the pet cemetery, which, that was a pretty lawless place, but then it was just different nightclubs. They, what they would do is they'd get all the local bands that were playing at the time, and they'd make one big show, 
where everybody played, like eight bands, and they called it a slam fest. So I actually put together a slam fest one time, and uh, and that ended up uh, really crazy. With like it was in a it was in a black neighborhood, and we got uh, I was outside the club. It was still broad daylight, and I I, I was walking, and all of a sudden there was a a crowd of like a hundred black people that that wanted to fight everybody that was in the club. And uh, that didn't end up happening. Uh, There was like a face-off, but there was no violence. I think stuff thrown, but it was, that was kind of (laughs) unnerving, you know. But, you know, like I said, most most places that had shows, there was only one or two shows, like, because so much damage and all that, you know, or the cops came or whatever, but. But, you know, yeah, there was a lot of DIY stuff because of that, because every every place was different and new because nobody wanted to continue doing it, you know? Wow. You know, you mentioned No Fraud. Uh, I checked them out. I checked out uh, Rat Cafeteria. Um, right. And some of the other bands that were, were referenced, and you talked about Slam Fest. There's, like, there's a Slam Fest flyer in the book. Um, where does... Like, where does this stuff exist now? Like the music, is it, is it available? There's, I saw there's like a couple like YouTube pages that have some old videos and stuff, but like if someone wanted to go either buy or, or download an album, like is this cataloged somewhere? Not really. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like even for that film, I had a hard time collecting audio uh and some of that audio that I collected, it was they would say, you know, no one's ever heard this. So there's record. Um, Hang on a second. Hey, hang on one quick second, Tony. I'm sorry. We got kicked off of the Bluetooth. Um, I'll fix that in post. All right, yeah, sorry. If somebody calls, <laughs> it kicks me off of Bluetooth. Um, the last thing I got was asking you if this stuff exists somewhere. Yeah, you can't You can't really buy it. I think the BP records out there, the No Fraud stuff's out there, the Pink Lincoln stuff's out there. Um, Rat Cafeteria, for instance, they made some recordings. They were, they were one of the very first... Uh, bands to play that style of music in the real early 80s was a band called Pagan Faith, which is another really good band I forgot to mention. They recorded some stuff. Rat Cafeteria. There was also a band called Becky's Army that uh, I'm not sure if they made any recordings. But no, you can't really get that stuff. Um, there, was, there was no record labels putting out Florida music at all. And nobody really got signed outside of Pink Lincolns, I guess, but I think that was late in the game. A local label started putting Pink Lincolns and No Fraud stuff out. Uh, but, yeah, you just have to look at websites and all that, you know. Like I said, nobody became household names. Not like any, not not like anything out of California or New York. Who uh, Who put out that We Can't Help It If We're From Tampa compilation? 
I don't know who put that out, but it was like a seven inch with four bands on it. Rat Cafeteria is on there. Um, that's the only Tampa band I think that's on it. I don't know who put that thing out. That was before my time. Okay. But when I was trying to think of a name for the DVD, somebody somebody brought that up. You know, we can't help it if we're from Tampa, so I, or we can't help it if we're from Florida, so I call it. We can't help it if we're from Tampa. But uh, that was the first, I guess, punk release out of Florida in any way. You know? Yeah, that's actually in its entirety is on YouTube. Um, it's very short, right? <laughs> um, a lot of fast songs, but uh, I guess that's a place I I can direct people to go check out. Obviously, also you know in the show notes for this episode, people can find you know a link to you if they want to check out a, a book or a DVD. Um, I think all the old bands have some type of Facebook page or something. Mm. I know Rat Cafeteria had reunited. Um, uh, and played some shows not too many years ago, but the singer's getting up there in age, <laughs> Mike. But uh, and they were great. I, I the last time I saw them play, I, I couldn't believe how great they were. But you know, the funny thing about that film is uh, there's not a whole lot of people that I interviewed in it. Uh, I don't remember how many. Then. Sorry. Hang on one second. Let me just text this person. Hold on. So they'll stop. God damn it. Oh, are they, somebody's texting you and knocking you off? Someone keeps calling me. literally like never happens to of course this would happen twice uh, thankfully through the magic of software I can fix this all up um, alright where were we <laughs> I don't remember <laughs> oh, um, well, you were mentioning that like some of those dudes are getting up in age. I did see, uh, I did see that that band Rat Cafeteria had like a more recent video, like playing a local bar or something like that. Yeah, that was a few years ago. Um, but like, for instance, like the guitar player, the guy that played guitar for them at that gig, he's no longer with us. There's four people that were featured in that film that are not with us anymore. You know? Wow. Um, so it's like a, for a while there, I was like, oh, you know, there's a curse. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Great, great people that we miss, you know. Uh, but um, no, no, none of those old bands are really playing except No Fraud anymore. So it's always good to see them. You know? When we did the, the movie screening... We had a bunch of bands reunite, which was really, really great. And uh, they sounded better than even back in the day, you know, so that was so much fun. I, I wish I wouldn't have drank as much as I did. I might have enjoyed it better, but it was still a blast, you know. We had it, we've screened it at this big place downtown. There was so many people there. I couldn't believe it, you know. So that went over really well. 
It's funny you mentioned that like the the sound sounded better. I always used to think about that with my dad's records. Or even if if you take a band like No Fraud, right? The the recording quality is it's I think it's fair to say shit, right? It's like people are on a, yeah. a, a they're, they're on a budget. Maybe they don't have the best equipment and they're just trying to put out a demo tape or whatever. But even even like if I listen to some like heavier stuff, um, like initial Black Sabbath recordings, they're heavy, right? But if you listen right. to uh, an album mastered and produced in 2020, it's just like crushing the sound. And it's like, it's not that those bands weren't, it's just the recording quality is so much better now. And I wonder what some of that yeah. stuff would sound like if it had been released now. Or I don't know, maybe that would, yeah, take, really. maybe that would take away from it too. I don't know. Yeah, um, I, I was fortunate enough to get involved in the record business for a few good years where I was uh, producing records and managing bands and stuff like that. And I don't know a whole lot about the recording process. I know it can be expensive, <laughs> you know. Uh, and yeah, it would have been great to, to hear some better quality recordings. But I think a lot of those, uh, like... I used to record bands in my bedroom on like a four track that turned out, you know, not too good, but I was really glad I did it. Uh, but yeah, everybody's on a shoestring budget back then, you know, Yeah. nobody's getting managed or anything like that. It was all too new. But when I was, I got in the music business at the, at the worst time when our label started really moving records was when uh, the internet was, sort of new and we didn't realize it was going to destroy the entire record business. You know, uh, we, we were really happy when we got our releases on what was called CD now, which was where you could, Oh my God, the place yeah. to buy CDs online. And I was like, wow, that, you know, the morning I woke up and looked at CD now and saw that our records were on there, is making these phone calls. Oh my God, we've done it. We've done it. Yeah. And then it killed us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it killed the whole music business because shortly after that Napster came out and I'm like, Oh man, Napster is so awesome. I'm sitting there downloading stuff on Napster, not realizing it's killing what I do for a living, <laughs> you know? And eventually it just, right when things started looking good, it, it just, the bomb dropped and everything was over with wow. back to my day job. You know, we had a good thing going, but the internet destroyed it and record stores started closing and, uh, and that's just what the, one of the bad things that happened from the internet, you know, it's got its pros and its cons, but it definitely wrecked. Like even you don't, I mean, Metallica or anybody like that, they don't make money on records. You know, they, they don't even, I don't even think. I don't even know how the record industry works anymore. Is it, do they even sell records at all or do they just give them away? Well, it's you all, know? you know, it's, it's all touring and merch, you know, Metallica can sell and, and now, $35. Yeah, and shirts. now where's that leave us? You know what I mean? So the, the touring yeah. is non-existent right now. Will that come back? I mean, do you want to sit in an arena with 15,000 people right now? You know? Yeah. It's, um, yeah. It's weird, you know. Do you know the band Saves the Day from? Um, I think they're from New Jersey originally. Yes. Yeah. So uh, they were on like Vagrant Records, you know. Like started out, I don't know, influenced by maybe like 
90s sort of emo type of stuff. Um, uh, you know, similarities maybe to, to a band like Lifetime or something early on. And they, they've gone on to become like not an arena rock band or something, but within the genre of like, you know, whatever, pop punk or indie music, a band that's consistently right. toured. Um, and I saw like more recently, they just put out a Patreon <laughs> and it's like, join our Patreon. It's like, they have to. I mean, if, if you're not touring, how the hell are you making money? Right. It's, and will it come back? You know, I mean, I can sit here and say, if I never get to go to another concert, I'll be all right. Cause I've been to so many, you know what I mean? But, uh, I'd like to. But if it doesn't happen, we'll have to adjust to that. But uh, the last big one I went to was Slayer, you know, <laughs> which I'm glad I went to that. But, I mean, uh, I don't think I'd feel comfortable right now in a, in, a, in a concert arena with a bunch of strangers all around me, you know. But like we said before, is any of this even real? You know, so and there's the, a lot of questions. There's some music, and I think especially heavy music or like hardcore bands, where that that won't translate to this sort of Instagram live type of an atmosphere. Like, if it's a band that typically kids are stage diving and singing into the mic and going wild, like you're not going to watch that on a screen from your bedroom and have any sort of experience that's similar to the live experience. Yeah, you're not going to jump around in your living room, <laughs> but uh. That band, uh, T that band TSOL, they did a live stream from some stage in some club last weekend, uh, Memorial Day, I think it was. And I was really happy that they did it. You know, I was watching, I was thinking, man, all right. I, I was glad that they did that. You know, I was waiting for certain songs, but, uh, that's the first band I've seen do that. But it's like, you know, but. Like I mentioned to you last night, I've got a friend that makes his living playing music seven days a week in a different place. He's got a schedule, you know, that he goes on. Well, the bars are closed. That was his living, you know. So now he, thankfully for us, he does a live stream once a week, I think. And uh, he doesn't beg for donations, but he has a little button you could push if you want to donate, which I gladly did last night. You know, yeah. I thought, man, what's he going to do? That's all he's done his whole life is play music. He was in successful bands that toured the world before, but now he's more like a solo, but he plays in, you know, VFW hall one night, some bar on a river the next night, but he's, but he's constantly booked. That's what he's done. Well, he's out of a job. I don't know what he's qualified to do other than that, you know? So those are the people that are suffering. I'm not suffering because my job isn't like that, but, uh, there's gotta be a lot of people out there like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's, there's people that that's all they know is their music. And if they don't have that and it takes something as simple as a virus that may or may not be real to rip that away from them. You know, so you got to be sympathetic toward those people. A lot of people, it's just a hobby, but not everybody, you know. Do you work in journalism now, or was all the writing and all this just a passion project? 
No, I I don't work in journalism. Um, I did all that sort of like a hobby, and then somebody that had the the means and the know-how and the money to start a record label got with me years ago, and we started that record label. So everything I've done is just been sort of out of my um, uncommon need to constantly be creating something or doing something, mm. you know, writing a book or making a film or something like that. Right now I haven't been doing much of that, you know, writing or anything. Uh, but I would have loved to have gotten to journalism, but it's kind of one of those things where you got to have, certain credentials and know certain people, you know, like when your record label falls apart, you can't go to apply to another record label. Right. You know, that's <laughs> it. You're done. <laughs> you know, you can't say, Hey, uh, you got any openings? I did this for four or five years and this is my credentials for that. This is my resume. That's not going to happen. It's all who, you know, you know, and, um, and pretty much anybody I know is lucky. They got what they got. And they can't offer nothing, you know. Like if I know somebody in journalism, I don't think they could get me a job. Right. You know? I think that some people to a certain degree still want um, you to be educated in that field and yeah. don't care about what your uh, experience is without some type of piece of paper that shows you were taught this. I think you they know? also um, often sort of groom you to be a certain type. <laughs> like you sort of have to fit the, the journalist mold or, or have the journalist voice or adhere to a certain uh, opinion depending on whoever the, the company that owns the publication that you work for unless you're freelance. So, um, Yeah, I know several people that are in that field, photographers and, and writers and things like that, uh, but I've, I've never thought to reaching out and trying to get a job with them, you know, because... It's also shaky anyway, like, you know, if they work for a newspaper, well, is that newspaper going to be around two years from now? Right. If they work for a local music publication, is that going to be around two years from now? The, the, the whole online thing makes things so unpredictable. that uh, It's like, you know, my son started college. Well, I'm thinking, what do you study? Because mm. how do you know whatever you're studying is going to be, you know, a job by the time you get out of school. You know what I mean? Yeah. How do you know what the future is going to hold with technology the way it is? With, uh, you know, you, like I'm watching TV yesterday and, and they're talking about how anybody that's like a little kid right now has no reason to learn how to drive a car, you know? Yeah. There's no reason to even learn. <laughs> which is crazy, you know, but, and with artificial intelligence and all that stuff that you hear about and the, the way we're jumping leaps and bounds, you don't know where we're going to be five years from now. Look at what's just changed since Christmas. You know, we're a totally different world than we were Christmas that just passed. Um, and, and where, where's it going to end up? That's so I'm grateful for what I've got that I've got, a job I can hold on to right now. And I'm walking on eggshells thinking, man, that's the only thing I'm worried about is losing this job. <laughs> you know, I'm not worried about anything else. Um, which it doesn't look like that'll happen, but you never know. I mean, three or four days ago, they weren't burning down buildings 
all across the country. You know, every day something new happens that can be a good thing or a bad thing, but it seems like everything good comes with some kind of negative aspect to it. You know what I mean? I mean, you do a lot of traveling, I guess, um, but you're not right now. And when will you be able to again? It was supposed to be in a couple of weeks. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, and yeah, who knows? And it, it sounds really silly. No, I guess it doesn't sound silly, but this might be strange that like I was in Kenya and I met some Maasai chiefs and um, we were hanging out with someone from the UN who was actually married to a man who was a chief of local Maasai. And they are in 2020 entirely dependent on tourism. You know, it's not like you're going to Disneyland there, but they do. Uh, the guides are the people who take you on safaris. There are local craftsmen who sell things. And they've created an economy that they're able to subsist based on tourism. And so he reached out to me recently on WhatsApp. It was just like, how are you doing in the U.S.? I'm like, I'm, I'm, thankfully, I'm doing okay. And I said, how are you? And he's like, we're in big trouble right now. And there's, you know, because of like globalization, there's economies all over the place that are dependent upon people traveling. And that's, you know, that's the sort of world I operate in. And what the hell is going to happen? What's going to be there? Like, I'm, I'm thinking, can I go some places? It's like, well, Argentina, it's not letting anyone in. <laughs> uh, Malaysia, not letting anyone in. Like, you you can't go anywhere. Um and what yeah. is going to be the effect of that, you know? In, in well, you know, right when, right when this thing hit and right when it started uh, hitting the news that something crazy is happening, I was getting ready to hand someone a down payment on a house. Wow. Right? And I thought, hang on here. <laughs> you know? So I said, look, I'm not giving you a down payment on a house until we figure out what's going on, you know, because I could lose my job, you know, I might need this money. And they were totally cool with it. They were like, Hey, yeah. And I said, how about we talk again when Disney world reopens? Yeah. They were like, well, that's a pretty good idea. So that's what we're doing, which, you know, that's the thing too, you know, places like Disney world, it's $140 to get in there and they pack the place every single day. So they are, I'm sure somebody's got a savings account, right? But they're losing so much money. And uh, it's so, it, it's all so weird. You know, like, I'm not seeing people dropping dead around me. But we're all going through this crisis, you know, where I just, I don't see evidence of it in my face that there's really anything truly threatening but what can I do? You know, I have to believe the government, <laughs> you know, what choice do you have? But where we're going to be like, you know, I don't know what this world's going to be like for like, say my 14 year old son, when he's 20, what are things going to be like? And like, I see people like, Hey, uh, we're having a baby. And I'm thinking, geez, you know, what is the world going to be like when that kid's 18? Yeah. And I ask him what do you think the world's going to be like when your kid turns 18? And they're like, man, don't, don't ask me that. <laughs> you know, I think it'll be an extreme, yeah. an extreme on one end. 
things will just keep getting worse or we'll get to a point where we start figuring out some of this shit and, you know, like... Uh, yeah, because I'll be 50 soon. I remember when the TV only had three channels and it shut off at midnight, <laughs> you know? Uh, it's, we've come a really long way in the past 40 years. Um, and people talk about global warming and all this other stuff in the future. I can't imagine it. It really makes me question reality sometimes. Like if I get to thinking about it too much, I flip out and start running down the road. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I can't handle it. <laughs> it's, it's too much, just too many changes. Um, but I'm happy. People say, I mean, I think it's the best of times to be living in, you know, I think it's a great time to be alive, but it's, there's a lot going on and there's a lot to take in every day. If you got your eyes open, mm. you know, it's, it's hard to uh, understand what goes through the minds of some younger people and how they view everything going on right now. You know, just think about it. You know, a year ago, there was a whole lot less going on, you know, a, a whole lot less to worry about. So it's, it's definitely kind of chilling, you know, and it makes you, makes you question it all for me anyway. Yeah. Uh, not, not, that. I don't mind it. I can stay right here and not travel. I'm not a big traveler anymore. I used to travel a lot, but I pretty much seen everything I want to see. I'm not, I don't like to fly mm. and that kind of, when you don't like to fly, it, it kind of cuts down your travel options, but uh, yeah, certainly. I'm, 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 I'd be happy just to sit right here where I'm at. You know, I'm, I'm in Florida. I don't need to go to Jamaica. I want to go to the beach. I'll go to the beach here. It's the same thing, you know? Um, so you get out and you travel, you see a lot of things. That's fantastic, you know? Um, but I'm kind of all right with where I'm at now. Yeah. I don't know yeah. what it is. It's sort of like the itch for me that can never be scratched. It's like the, the heroin addict who's chasing the dragon, right? Like this is, this is my, th the thing that sort of like helps, it sounds cheesy maybe, but like put out the fire that's, that's inside of me, right? Like it's, for some people it's music. Yeah. For some people it's drugs or whatever it is for people. Like this is my thing that, um, I'm always going to want to do. And, you know, I've been healthy. I'm very fortunate that nothing's really happened to me. We're pretty sure I got COVID in the beginning. You know, I was taking the subway every day to work and I went to the doctor and we didn't have tests here. And they're like, you're not, over 60, like we think you're going to be fine. We just can't test you. Um, but you know, I've, I say that today I've been totally fine. My biggest thing is like, we're, my girlfriend and I live here in a fifth floor walk up in like a little studio apartment and we're just getting cabin fever. It's like, God, it's uh, we got to get out. <laughs> like we got to go see something, do something. Um, but we're still, you know, we haven't, we're not even on phase one of reopening in New York yet. So it's, uh, well, you know, any, any experience in life is worth having, you know, if if somebody comes to me and says, hey, you want to go do this? I'm going. I don't care what they're talking about. Yeah. Anything's better than just sitting around, you know. But I've been fortunate enough that I've been able to, to do a lot of traveling and and uh, see a lot of places that um, I never would have seen. And it's all so great to remember. You know what I mean? Just everything's it's all building memories and, uh, and you know, that, that stuff is priceless. Mm. Like my kids, you know, the kids these days aren't quite as outgoing, 
you know, hey, you want to go do this? And they'll say, nah. I'm like, man, you know, what are you talking about? Because <laughs> yeah, uh, there's, there's a lot of things that you experience in other places, just seeing other places. Like, you know, I couldn't believe how beautiful the state of Washington was, you know, when I got there. I'm like, my God, this, you know, this is incredible. Or like the mountains in California, you know. Yeah. I didn't know there was big, giant mountains in California, you know. And uh, being able to do stuff like that is is absolutely priceless. But I, where I live is pretty much, it's a big tourist place too, but it's where I grew up, so I'm used to it. So, like, I don't go to the beach every day. We go on vacations and spend a couple weeks there. But I'm not going to get on a plane and fly to Hawaii or anything like that just to be at the beach, you know, when I got here. So. Yeah, I get it. You know, it's... Uh... It's different strokes. I, I like it. I like this. I like it for the cultural context. Like it, it does something for me that maybe is hard for me to articulate. But it, it, it scratches that itch that I, I've always got this this something. I don't know what maybe maybe for you is creativity. Um, but I'm bringing. Well, and you get to see cultures. I'm sure you've seen cultures that. That's the thing too. Seeing a different culture. I haven't really seen too many different cultures. I've seen the United States, American culture, mm. and Mexico. Mexico was kind of different, you know, but you've probably seen cultures that are unbelievable, you know, like that the way people have lived for ages um, being so different than what we're accustomed to here, you know, it's it's got to be pretty eye-opening. Oh, yeah. I mean, the... There's been things I love. There's been things I've seen that I greatly disagree with. You know, I I went to Brunei and met some people that I really love and like hung out with, had a, a great time with them. But it's a country with Sharia law that a lot of the rights and freedoms and ideas about, you know, just basic human rights that we have here, like are stripped away from people there. Um, but the people I met, I found are just, like me, <laughs> they also just want to be happy and have a good time and hang out with friends, and they don't want to be oppressed by their government as any more than you or I do or anyone does. Um, so right. yeah, I've been really fortunate to see to see a lot, you know. Um, I really hope sometime soon I can start doing that again because uh, I'm itchy for it. <laughs> well, they still people still fly, right? Yeah, people are flying, but a lot of countries are still not allowing people into their borders. You know, some countries are just getting hit hard with this now, or at least, you know, that's what that's what I'm reading. Um, so you could fly to California, but you can't fly to Paris, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah, and because I'm oh, from... Oh, I wouldn't want to be on a plane right now. <laughs> well, because I'm from New York, too. Even some cities in the States are like, well, if you're coming from New York, you got to quarantine for a week before you're out about in our place. Um, I don't even know they what said that, that here. Yeah. I don't even know what that means. Like quarantine where in a hotel <laughs> in a CDC <laughs> lab. Like, I don't know what that means, man. They were stopping New Yorkers at the, at the Florida Georgia line and telling them they couldn't come or they had to quarantine somehow wow. because people were, uh, were coming down here a lot. So. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to ask you one more music question. Um, sure. And then we'll, we'll plug all of your work so people can check it out. You know, I see you're wearing the Raw Power shirt. Um, 
<laughs> yeah. And I'm I'm flipping through the book looking at flyers, and it's like I'm a, I'm a kid in a candy shop doing that. It's like uh, it's Iggy Pop played this show, Black Flag. Like looking at some of these shows, like well, these are musicians I listen to now, but like I miss them in their prime. I miss them in their heyday. Um, so uh, I'll give a quick anecdote. There's a band I really love from Iowa. They're called Modern Life Is War. Uh, and they're a hardcore punk band. Started maybe around um, like 2001-ish, 2002. And I've been fortunate enough now to have the, their singer Jeff. Like now I know him. He's been on the podcast a bunch. But I, you know, I used to see them all the time. And they played a show. They used to do these like after shows kind of. They'd play a show at a, a club or a venue in New York City. And then they would play at like a loft apartment. And so there's this place, 538 Johnson in, in Bushwick in Brooklyn. And it's an old like factory building that's been converted sort of almost squatter style, but I think there are landlords into uh, these big loft apartments with punk kids. And <laughs> it'd be just like a big open space and they would have shows there. And they play, and Modern Life is War played a show there once. I don't know how old I was, maybe 22. And it was just utter madness. Like it was kids hanging from pipes from the ceiling, jumping off the stairs. There's two blurry, like 60 second videos that someone put on YouTube. It's sort of hard to see what's going on, but you can get the sort of chaos of it and the insanity and everyone singing along. And that stands out in my memory. If I have a favorite, uh, you know, show or concert or whatever I attended, that's up there. Um, Having seen everything you've seen, is there any like one singular show you went to that really stands out in your mind as the best or as, as close to the best for you? Hmm. <clears throat> Bad brains. Uh, <laughs> uh, in 1986. Wow. Uh, that was funny because we were we were in this mode where we didn't really even know who bad brains were, but we knew they were from out of town. So well, we're going to go check it out. Cause any band from out of town was always good. Even if we'd never heard of them. And then I got there and, uh, and somebody said, Hey, did you know that this band is black? And I'm like, what? Wow. You know? And then, so I see this Winnebago parked at the side of the club with these black guys with dreadlocks. And I walked up and I was like, are you, are you, uh, are you bad brains? And they were like, yeah. And they got me high <laughs> <laughs> and, then, uh, and then watched them play. And it was like, wow. I mean, cause we didn't know, I didn't know what to expect. You know, I'm really glad I got to see that. Uh, there's been so many shows over the years though. Uh, I'm thinking, uh, hmm, you know what was a really good one I remember seeing, which was like a show that was super packed and a really good vibe and just had a blast was uh, Fugazi in 1991 in Tampa, where it was like, I couldn't believe how many people were there and they played forever and they played like, if, you, if you're a fan of a band, you know, oh, I hope they play this song. It's like they played all the songs in the perfect order that I wanted them to. 
that I wanted to hear. That was great. Um, there's more, I'm sure. Ramones, uh, wow. I saw them several times. And when I would go, I remember I would go see the Ramones. I went alone one time to see them. And there was a, a there was a, a Mexican guy that I was hanging out with. He walked up to me and was like, hi. And I was like, oh, okay, what's up? And he's speaking in broken English and he's talking about how he loved the Ramones and he couldn't believe that they were in the same place he was right now and that they were actually going to play and he was going to be able to witness it. I mean, he was talking to me about this and I'm telling him how great it's going to be. I'm like, man, I've seen them several times and I'm telling them all what to expect, you know? And, uh, and it was a crazy show. And, uh, I didn't see him the whole show, but when I'm walking back out, he's over by the bathroom and his clothes are all ripped up and he's <laughs> got his head against the wall and he's crying. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh man, the skinheads beat him up. <laughs> so I walk over wow. and I go, man, what happened? And it, he didn't get beat up. He had the best time of his entire life. He was crying because he had just, had like a godlike experience and his clothes were all ripped up because he took full opportunity in the pit, you know, and, and he was just exhausted. And, you know, I was like, wow, you know, that's so cool. <laughs> so that was a memorable one. You know? Yeah. I want to, I want to give maybe people context. Um, you know, there, there's much more inclusivity within punk music today. And so people might hear the bad brand things and be like, well, well, what do you mean? But like, we're talking a time when the majority of the bands are like early 20, late teens, early twenties, white males. And right. if you've never heard the bad brains, go listen to them. Cause like they're your favorite band's favorite band. Um, and you know, a lot of people think they, they wrote one of the best hardcore punk records ever. And they had just this, just such a wild new sound. Like it was something different. Um, and I am supremely jealous of that experience that you had because that is really wild. Yeah, they were that there's never going to be anything like them ever again. And there never was before them, mm. you know? So, um, a band like that, you know, they're, they're never going to be, top 40 or anything. So I guess I'm hoping that they were rewarded well for what career they had. You know, I, I don't think any of them are rich or anything like that, but they deserve to be, you know, uh, you listen to Rollins and he says he, he made no money off a of black flag. I mean, he's obviously got this career now, uh, but I think a lot of those bands got pretty screwed early on. Yeah, and and you know, like uh, I'm friends with a lot of people that uh, acquaintances, friends with a lot of people that I used to idolize um, when I was younger. Like this Raw Power band, the, the shirt I'm wearing. When when I was a kid, I used to crank their records. Well, I didn't know I'd end up putting out a record for them, or that I'd go on the road as their manager. But I did that, you know. Um, 
and yeah, there, there's not a lot of money to be made in the music business unless you're in that category like that gets played on the radio, I guess. And, yeah. and even those people, I don't know how they're making a living not selling records, but, um, a lot, and a lot of those people, like I, I know Keith Morris, who's the Black Flag first singer and he sings with Circle Jerks, of course. And that's, that's his life is the music he made. Um, when all that kind of falls to the wayside, most of those people don't have anywhere to go, you know? Yeah. And they don't have big savings accounts. Henry Rollins was one of those people that he took every opportunity he was offered. Yeah. To continue making a living, doing something he was passionate about. He taken a lot of chances and, uh, and it's great that he can make a decent living, um, doing anything because he's, a very multifaceted person, you know, but not everybody came out of it like he did. You know, he's, he's sort of a one of, one of a kind person that came from the punk genre. Yeah. He's kind of standalone. Yeah. Um, all right, Tony, I'm going to start to wrap it cause I've got, I'm actually recording right after this. Um, um, it's actually a call to Pakistan. So that will be, Really cool and interesting. Uh, but I do want yeah. to, you know, send people in the, the direction of what you've done. Uh, so I've referenced a few things, but maybe just briefly talk about uh, the work that you've released and how people can find that. Well, I've got four books total that can be purchased. Um, I've got one that is called The Road. And it's basically, I contacted as many underground, punk, alternative, whatever kind of musicians that I could contact and said, tell me some stories from touring, you know, crazy stories or whatever. And, and uh, did phone conversations, recorded them, and transcribed everything into this fantastic book that, that's got a lot of all the top names in underground music telling me all these crazy stories from all across the board, you know, and, uh, that got published and I got screwed on that deal. But so then as I was making that, I started writing a, a book that's, I call it uh, fiction that way. Nobody can say that anything's inaccurate, but it's based on my experiences in the punk scene in Tampa, but it's wrapped around a, fictional storyline, but that's a really good read. It's called life and times. And I followed that up with, uh, another book called, um, free, free drinks, which is a really crazy book about a guy that falls on, uh, well, he has a family situation where he ends up in like a, a he ends up an orphan, but he makes the most of it in the, joins up with these guys and they make a band and they go on the road and it's very comical and very offensive at times, free drinks. And then, uh, and then I sort of gathered as many photos and flyers for the book I sent you called uh, the Tampa scene. A lot of people contributed to that. I didn't take all the pictures in that for sure, but it's, it's got all the flyers you know, full page, eight by 10. It's like a coffee table book, 
all the pictures I could find of the bands and people that made up the scene. No words at all, just pictures just to look at. Yeah. Because I wanted to document that. And uh, that was after I'd done the documentary film about the sort of start and destruction of the Tampa scene. And that's how I accumulated a lot of that stuff was making that film. And I thought this could make a good book. Somebody needs to document this. So the three books before that you can get on Amazon. Amazon wouldn't, and which I make no money from. Yeah. Because the way Amazon works, you don't see any money. Um, but the coffee table picture book, Amazon wanted me to charge way more than I wanted to charge. I think they wanted like me to charge like $60 Jesus. in order for them to even carry it, which would still mean I would get no money. So I thought that's okay. So I just sell that through the manufacturer. Uh, and I've been self-publishing because I don't want to get screwed by any more um, uh, book publishers, which are just as bad as record labels when it comes to screwing people out of royalties. The first book that I put out, The Road, sold a lot of copies. I did book signings even where people showed up in lines with books in their hand that they had bought somewhere. But according to the book publisher, I've only sold one copy. What? (laughs) When When it came years later and I thought, I still haven't got a royalty check, not thinking I needed to get, you know, thousands of dollars, but something, right? Well, I taught myself how to do all these things that they say they paid people to do, like put the numbers on the pages and do the book layout and the cover art. And I do it myself now. So, so wow. there you got the road, life and times, free drinks and the Tampa scene. And we can't help it if we're from Tampa, the DVD documentary film. I think that's all I've done. <laughs> well, that I mean, that is quite impressive. Um, yeah, and this was this was awesome for me. I I don't know. I I love nerding out about this kind of stuff, and I, I'm I'm sincere in the fact that like I would really hate to see, you know, a lot of this knowledge and this stuff go away. So if in any small way I can help to preserve some of it through doing an episode like this, uh, it makes me very happy. So uh, I just want to say thank you again. Oh, my pleasure. All right, folks, that is a wrap on episode number 169 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you to Tony for joining me on this episode. It was a bit of a long time in the making. I had reached out to him, I think, back in like mm, January, maybe. And, you know, because of COVID and all the stuff going on in the world, I got bumped back a little bit. So I was really happy that we were able to connect, you know, here during quarantine and, and get this one out to you. All right, lots of stuff on the horizon, so stay tuned. Lots of cool episodes coming. Thank you, Voyagers. Thanks for listening, as always, and please take care of each other. I will catch you next time.